You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. And every once in a while, Michael, the Open Floor Globe members step up and they try to get us in trouble. And this is going to be one of those opportunities. There is no question about it because we got a huge, big-time question from Harry right off the top that's going to guide today's discussion. He writes, Michael Pina loudly and correctly exposed Michael Jordan's spectacular move as one of the most overrated highlights, quote-unquote, in NBA history. In that vein, I want you guys to rank these NBA figures in terms of how outsized their praise and reputation are compared to their actual achievements. I've got a Mount Rushmore of the most overrated in the NBA, Harry says. Here he goes. Mike D'Antoni, number one. The revolutionary genius coach has zero finals appearances despite coaching some of the biggest names in the game and regularly being listed among the best coaches in the league. Number two, Harry says, the Celtics' big three. Three Hall of Famers, a Hall of Fame coach, one title. With as much adulation as this group gets, you would think nine of the Celtics' titles belong to them instead of one solitary ring. A decade later, and we still have to endure cries of, if we would have had Kendrick Perkins. Look, if your (laughs) dynasty swings on the availability of Kendrick Perkins, it's not a real dynasty. Number three, Harry writes, Chris Paul, the constant arguments of where he stands in the pantheon of greatest point guards is tiresome. Fairly or unfairly, point guards are measured by winning and leadership. Zero finals appearances, a history of not being there when it matters most, and a leadership style that at best can be described as abrasive. Number four, Reggie Miller. 18 points, three rebounds, and three assist averages for an all-time great. Three total MVP votes for his entire career. Never was on the first or second team All-NBA. All you're going to find is a few third-team All-NBA appearances. Uh, He wasn't known for his defense or being a glue guy. What am I missing here? Just because he was supposedly clutch? He could be in the Hall of Good, maybe. Hall of Memorable, without question. Hall of Fame, I don't see it. So Harry is using his quarantine period, Michael, to just absolutely take haymakers at everybody. Let's just call him Haymaker Harry. Now, it does seem like some of these um, nominations, though, Michael, are pointed directly at you. Of course, the Celtics, (laughs) a team that's very close to your heart. Of course, Mike D'Antoni, very close to heart, a guy that you said recently you would want to play for. And then also Chris Paul, somebody who you've praised here, and rightfully so. I mean, Chris Paul has deserved the praise this season. So are you going to take up Harry on his ranking procedure? Who is the most overrated of those four? And, And give me your order. This is such an outrageous cast right here to call these people overrated i just i mean come on come on harry um if i have to rank them 
just because I respect all of them so much. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's really difficult. I would say that Reggie Miller is the one who kind of sticks out a little bit as the sore thumb here. I, I don't think that Reggie Miller is overrated relative to the other people who are listed here. I'm just going to have to pick him. I mean, th- I, I can see the argument and I actually didn't know that he'd never made a first or a second team all NBA. That's that's pretty bad on the resume and the all-time resume. But he also hit some of the bigger shots and you know, there's the <clears throat> legendary ending against the Knicks, the rivalry with Spike Lee. Uh he had some big performances against Michael Jordan on a big stage. So I mean, I now trying to like validate his his as being underrated but um if i had to just pick one it would be reggie miller as the most overrated and then the other three i'm not even i can't even like engage in this <laughs> this is this disrespect okay so here's the tricky part about the overrated conversation we should set some ground rules mm-hmm. obviously there is no international rating body for basketball right so we're all sort of taking perceived uh reputations based off probably nba twitter based off of, I guess, articles or or podcast discussion or just sort of the reputations that maybe have congealed over the years. And one thing that I always take into account when I'm looking at like overrated or underrated is just volume of discussion, right? Like to Mm -hmm. me, uh, there should be sort of a relationship between how important you are and how much conversation that you generate. And that's not always a direct relationship, right? There's absolutely certain things like, I mean, you go back to like J.R. Smith is an easy example. We spent an awful lot of time for lots of years talking about J.R. Smith. And like he is not a guy who's even going to be in the conversation for the Hall of Fame ever. Right. But he was, uh, you know, discussed just repeatedly. And so to me, that kind of a thing uh, winds up getting a player or a team or a, uh, you know, or an organization into that overrated category. So that's sort of the standard that I use, Michael. I was with you for pretty much everything that you said about Reggie Miller, but I've got to say, I've got to say, I'm coming right at you. The most overrated of these four things is the Celtics big three, Michael. Come on. That is, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Can can Um, I ask you, in the spirit of an olive branch, can I ask you, obviously that you really revere Kevin Garnett, rightfully so. You really revere... Uh, Paul Pierce and, and Rajon Rondo, rightfully so. But does a little bit of you understand the nitpicking that goes on towards these guys, knowing that their window was fairly narrow um, in terms of how long they were together, and they did only have the one title, uh, the two finals appearances? Like, if you compare them side by side, and this is sort of what I meant with the, the volume of discourse, the internet never discusses the Detroit Pistons, except every once in a while, there's like a charity conversation about the Pistons, right? But they were going to the Eastern Conference Finals every single year. They won a title, surprised everybody. Um, They're not hallowed. People don't hold up their starting five as one of the greatest units of all time. They're not considered, you know, like the kind of the standard bearer for an era of defensive excellence. Like nobody really celebrates or like, you know, glorifies them in any way. But on the flip side with the Celtics, and some of it is earned, these guys are legitimate Hall of Fame players, but these guys get glorified just to a crazy degree. Like if I had to say the amount of discussion compared to those two organizations, which were pretty similar in terms of overall team performance during the entire era, wouldn't you say the Celtics probably get 100 100 times more attention than the Pistons do? 
Yeah, that's really fascinating because the way you looked at those Pistons teams uh, in the mid 2000s, I mean, when I think about them, I think they do get a lot of credit as, you know, that standalone team that won the title without a top five, top 10 player on the roster. So I think they do get a lot of credit. I Granted, it's not even close to the volume of discussion that the Celtics get when they form the big three. But I think that that's deserved just because the ceiling on that Celtics team was so much higher than any of those Pistons teams that either won the title or went to the championship. So Okay, fair. Uh, so defend your Celtics honor. Why are they not overrated? Why are they, I mean, properly rated? You're not going to go why, so far to yeah, say why are that they're, they're, why, why, are why they are underrated? They, they, they 100% underrated. No. <laughs> I mean, okay, so when they first formed... Um, the window was like one or two or maybe three years, right? And instead they stretched it to, I think you could say, a good solid five seasons of pseudo-title contention. And, you know, they win the first, the very first year, which as we've seen, you know, when LeBron went to the Miami Heat, struggled in the first year in the finals. Um, other teams kind of coming together in in the one in the initial foray, foray uh, typically don't, you know, romp through the, the regular season. I think they won 66 games that year. Um, their chemistry was great. They struggled a little bit in the playoffs. You know, the, that Atlanta Hawks team took them to seven. LeBron took them to seven in a classic series. And then they beat the Pistons in six um, in the Eastern Conference Finals to go to the championship. Um, so I think that that was very impressive on their part. And... I think, like, look, when you win a championship, you can't be called overrated. That's It is so difficult to win the title. And for them to go to two championships, to two finals series in three years, um, and, uh, you know, I get the Kendrick Perkins torn ACL, and, you know, if he played, they probably would have won that series. But the way I look at it is that in 2009, they were... I'm looking this up on the fly right now. They were 27 and two heading into a Christmas Day rematch against the Lakers that season. They were uh, they were even better than they were the previous year when they won the championship, which you don't even really see very often. And no, then I mean, Kevin Garnett, they were so there. good. Yeah. Kevin Garnett was barking on the court. You know, he was getting down and acting like a dog on the court because there was literally no one who could stop them. Right, and they had intimidated the entire league. And all the young backup point guards around the league who are facing Kevin Garnett down on all fours, barking and screaming and hooting and hollering are sitting there like, oh, my God, am I even going to be able to get the ball across the line, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, one of the other factors is, look, they were influential in a lot of ways. Uh, You go from... Tom Thibodeau's defensive coverages, the strong side overhelping. Uh, he took to Chicago and had a lot of success with Joakim Noah, and then a lot of teams around the league basically copied that strategy on the defensive end for years. Uh, and I think even more importantly, just the concept of a big three. Now, they were not the first you know, super team or anything like that. I'm not going to credit them in that way. But they did inevitably push LeBron James from Cleveland to Miami, where we did see uh, kind of a proliferation of all-stars trying to team up to win championships, because he's not going to Miami 
if Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen never come to Boston. That's just, I, I think he is going to win championships or at least one in Cleveland during his time there. That's they a were great, ex- it's a great point. Kevin Garnett's the original ring chaser, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, that that's, one, that's what I was saying, yeah. That was a joke on my behalf. You're right, though. I mean, they have a, a very formative role in in changing the era from Michael's like always a bull, Tim Duncan's always a spur, Kobe is always a Laker into, hey, there's a new attitude towards what players can and should do and how teams should be constructed and even just like how you should allocate your salaries, right? Like pay top dollar for your very best players and just try to find the very best role guys you can around them and and go for it that way. Like they're a bridge between those two eras for sure. And just to cap it off real quick, like – I don't think they get enough credit post-2010 for how good they were and how competitive they were, particularly against those Miami Heat teams. I mean, there were some series where, you know, there was the Rondo series where his elbow snapped when he was thrown to the ground viciously by that dirty scoundrel Dwayne Wade. Um, (laughs) There was, uh, you know, I think Rondo in particular and how he elevated himself uh, he had some just ridiculous performances in the playoffs, and they pushed LeBron to have, in my opinion, the greatest game of his career, Game 6, and I think it was 2012 against the at the Garden, obviously against the Celtics, when he just went absolutely bananas. So I think their place in NBA history, because of their relationship with LeBron James's career, is just so much... Uh, more pronounced than anything that the Detroit Pistons did when you just kind of look back uh, at what really matters in uh, in the history books. You made a very, very compelling and layered case. I'm impressed, Michael. Um, I, we're going to have to split the difference here because you guys still get way too much talk, man. I mean, people <laughs> really fixate. And, it's, and it doesn't help that both KG and Paul Pierce and now Kendrick Perkins have all gone into media roles. I think that in Doc, obviously, is just a, you know a nonstop mm-hmm. um, one-man media machine. I think that's a big part of why they're always going to be sort of overrated in my eyes. Is like these guys know how to to shout from the rooftops with bugles about their own greatness, and they're not afraid to do it. And of course, that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. I don't blame them for doing it, but I do think that it kind of contributes to the volume of the noise around that team. Okay, if you have to say number two most overrated among. Mike D'Antoni, Chris Paul, uh, or I guess you you didn't pick the Celtics yet. Which of those uh, three entities uh, are the most overrated? Um, I mean, I think we're splitting hairs at this point, but I'll just I'll just go with Mike D'Antoni, who I I do not think is overrated in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> I just I, like I think he's. I think when I when I generally look at people across the NBA, I find them to be either underrated or properly rated. I don't think too many people are, are overrated, and I know we're going to get to that in a little bit, and I'm about to d- dispel and trash the sentence that I just uttered. <laughs> but, but with D'Antoni, like, look, I understand that he did not win a championship, but as I already stated, winning titles is incredibly difficult, and we should not judge any one individual in a team game on that basis alone, particularly a coach. Uh, I have a couple just uh, all-time career playoff records that I'm going to read, and it kind of just 
let you know how difficult all this is. So D'Antoni is 49 and 49 in his career in the playoffs as a head coach. Rick Carlisle is 58 and 62. Doc Rivers is 84 and 83. So I look at that and I'm kind of like, these guys are basically all 500. Um, D'Antoni was exactly 500, is exactly 500. He could have won the title in 2018 if Chris Paul did not uh, uh, pull his hamstring. He could have won in 2007 when the, the, the championship was wide open for the taking in that series against the Spurs and Steve Nash gets hip-checked into the scorer's table and uh, basically everyone gets suspended from the next game uh, uh, from on Phoenix's side just for stepping onto the court um, and breaking a totally draconian rule. Uh, so, I mean, it's like he just had a lot of bad luck, but the man revolutionized the sport, or at least he helped revolutionize the sport and how those Phoenix Suns teams played. And then even coming to Houston and really kind of unleashing James Harden the way he has, finding ways to make it work with Russell Westbrook when a lot of people said it could never work, uh, finding ways to make it work with Harden and Chris Paul when people before that partnership took place and had so much success, people doubted uh, that ability to, to, to thrive. Uh, so I don't know. I think that if you're a head coach, it's a lot of it is dictated by the players you have and the talent around you, and your job is just to kind of not screw it up. And I don't think D'Antoni has ever really screwed it up. I have two defenses for D'Antoni. Number one, I think that he gets a lot of the the philosophical credit that you were talking about, the importance of the role of the Celtics in their era. I think D'Antoni, mm-hmm. like even if he never wins, he is going to be held up for pace and space, right? And making sure that that became kind of the predominant style, shifting everything towards that direction and being way early on it. And being early on it at a time where he was getting mocked, ruthlessly questioned, relentlessly, everybody was kind of saying he's backwards for years and years and years. And just, he be- he stuck to his guns and he wound up being on the right side of the history. History bent towards him. And I think that um, from that standpoint, you get to call him a visionary, even if it never paid off with the title. And like he just kind of gets to have that card. In terms of the, the records, the postseason records, his would look a lot better if you took out his head-to-head matchups with Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, right? I mean, his, his mm-hmm. postseason record's looking real good without those uh, head-to-head uh, showdowns with those coaches and those great teams. And so one reason why I give him a little bit of a pass, and I wouldn't rush to call him overrated, I'm definitely not as high on him as you are. I, I hear the concerns about, oh, does he only care about offense, not defense, and all that stuff. Um, and I definitely hear the, the point loud and clear from Harry, who's saying, look, this guy's had a lot of talent. Like, at some point, he should have broken through. Um, to me, though, it's like the classic, he's like Barkley, or he's like Stockton, He's like Gary Payton, you know, going against like legit dynasties. I don't really think there's shame in losing to the Warriors at their peak or losing to Tim Duncan's Spurs, right? Um, and and a lot of the you know the postseason losses along the way for D'Antoni have come to teams of that ilk, right? And so mm-hmm. like, okay, you're second to all time greats. Like that's not you know some huge. Uh, you know, thing that we're, you know, like you have to wear a scarlet letter, loser, you have an L on your chest because you couldn't get past Duncan and, and <laughs> Steph Curry, Kevin Durant. It's okay. Um, all right. I think that we've gone through his list pretty thoroughly. Um, I actually agree with a lot of what you said about Reggie Miller as well. Um, I think one reason why Miller gets elevated was because his teams were so consistently good and he was just kind of the face of them, right? Like it wasn't 
Reggie and the mil- uh, millionaires, sort of like it was Jordan and the Jordanaires, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that team was so balanced. They were big, five, all five positions, great point guard, great center. They were together forever. They would fight you to the death. They were super annoying. They were always on national TV, it seemed like, uh, going against the, the Knicks or the Bulls, like you're mentioning. Um, and he just happened to be the high scorer. Um, he wasn't, you know, like by far and away their best player. It actually kind of parallels a little bit what happened with the Pacers later when Paul George is sort of like the face of those Pacers team. But really, I think of those Pacers teams as being that five-man unit as well, right? Like George Hill, Roy Hibbert, they're kind of clamping you together as a team defensively. And so why we remember Reggie and none of his teammates, um, you know, I I do think that's a little bit unfair to the rest of those guys um, and maybe does prop him up a little bit in, in the historical conversation. All right, now we're going to get to the main course here, though, Michael, which everyone's been waiting for. You and I are going to reveal our most overrated players, coaches, organizations, whatever else in the NBA uh, universe. And I believe you've got a list, and I really hope. I better not be on your list, Michael. You're not going to take shots at me, are you? Uh, Not in this episode, no. Okay, good. Okay, all right. Your list (laughs) is sounding great so far. All right, what you got? Give me your most overrated people. Uh, yeah. So again, I want to just preface this by saying that, like, generally, when I look at players and coaches, uh, I find that they're either properly rated or underrated. Um, and just my general stance in evaluating guys is I want to, you know, look to see who deserves more credit than they're currently getting or, All right. or is underpaid stop, or stop right there. You don't even, you don't even, you don't even need to do the windup. Okay. This is, this is quarantine radio. Okay. Everybody knows that we're here to keep it real. Everyone knows we're not trying to slight people. This is a conversation, not about whether someone's good or bad. It's whether they're getting too much attention or acclaim by the masses who we can't even define, as I said earlier, because we don't know who the masses are. It could change every moment. It's completely dependent upon who you specifically follow on Twitter and what information you consume. This is a personal opinion. It's not a character attack. Michael, take it away. Should I? I have a question for you. Should I start with the bigger names and work my way down, or just oh, yeah. kind of no, go through s- it? Okay. Swing for the fences. Give me your. Give me your best one. Give me your heater. Okay. I, the first one is Kyrie Irving, and yes. I'm partially <laughs> I'm partially throwing his name out here to plug a piece I just wrote about him on SB Nation, wondering if we'd ever get to see his peak or if it's his peak is already past us. And look, I'll listen to anyone arguing that he's overrated. I'll listen to people arguing that he's underrated or properly rated or whatever, what have you. Um, when I look at Kyrie Irving, especially over the past three years and kind of digging into the numbers with him, I just can't help but see someone who has a long way to go for him to kind of reach the level of acclaim that he's he he receives from so many of his adoring fans and the fact that he was kind of still a no-brainer max contract recipient by the Brooklyn Nets and and I think any other team in the league that had cap space would have uh, and a and a needed point guard would have also paid him that much money but I think that it deserved a little bit more of uh kind of a a, a deeper deeper analysis than just it being a no-brainer so from that perspective michael for for once we're perfectly aligned i mean i think everybody out there who's been listening to me for years understands that this would be my nominee i think it's a classic case of 
his best moments came on such a big stage and he was so good that he wound up having that be his new baseline for expectations. And that's unfair to him. It's unfair to all of us. That guy was so darn good in the 2016 finals for that week, outplaying Steph Curry, putting up crazy performances in the clutch, big time comeback, historic title for the Cavaliers and everything else that he winds up getting you know, this super clutch uh, label. He winds up being the big time playoff performer. Uh, he could be a franchise player now. He can go and have his own team and all this other stuff. And you look at the injuries, you look at the reliability, you look at the leadership personality, you look at the off court comments and just is he capable of being that, uh, you know, personality. Uh, you look at the defense, you look at the ball dominance. Those are all major, major questions. And we've got years worth of answers about the impact that that stuff has on his teammates. No one's denying he's a brilliant offensive player. No one's denying he's a brilliant scorer uh, and just an incredible ball handler and everything else. But there's more to the game than the stuff that Kyrie Irving does very, very well. And I think that uh, he's the perfect kind of person to become overrated because he's fun to watch when he's got it going. And it's very easy to see his genius uh, when he's playing well. Now, when he's playing poorly, he's also an easy thing to kind of excuse away. Oh, it's not a big moment, right? Oh, uh, you know, he does so much on offense, he doesn't need to try hard on defense. And and that's really not the right standard or the right framework to be judging these players. I think he just gets automatically grandfathered on to like every USA basketball team. He's always considered or like voted in almost every year as an all-star starter. And I just don't think he's on that level consistently as a player. You know, I think there's guys like, you know, Damian Lillard or other you know, point guards sort of in that range who have surpassed him and maybe don't get enough credit for it. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said about Kyrie. And, you know, in in kind of looking through his his career resume for the article that I wrote, uh, if I were to if I were to ask you, Ben, how many times do you think Kyrie finished top 10 in points per game in his entire career? And how high did he finish in when he finished as at the the highest point of his career? What, What would you what would you guess? I would say maybe he's got zero top five appearances and maybe one top 10. He has, you are correct, he has zero top five finishes. He has two top 10 finishes in points Ooh. per game. Uh, and the highest he ever finished was in 2018, his first year with the Celtics, eighth place. So that kind of was a little bit jarring for me. Um, and we should say that he did average, I think, 27 a game or something like that this year, but he only played in 20, so he did not qualify for the leaderboard. But when I kind of look back at him and try to find out when what his apex was or anything like that, I do always, and I think a lot of people will agree, go back to the 2016 finals when you know he had that 41-point back-against-the-wall uh, performance in Game 5 uh, on 24 shots, just like a ridiculous incandescent night for anybody and would headline anyone's resume. And I kind of have always thought that his step back three over Steph Curry was the best thing that ever happened to him. And now years removed from it and everything that's happened since, I'm kind of thinking that it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. It's kind of like a curse at this point. Would you agree with that? No, I I hear you. That's what I mean. It it raised the uh, bar for him so high. But I also think it gave his defenders, you know, enough ammunition to defend him forever, right? Like he almost got into this like legendary category 
um, from that standpoint. So to me, it's a gift that occurs. Obviously, it's going to be the most cherished moment of his career. I guess when I just look forward, when we're starting to like, you know, pick out who are the guys who can lead title teams, who are the players that you really have to kind of account for when you're saying, you know, true contenders or, uh, you know, stars in that absolute A-list level. To me, I think a lot of people put Kyrie into that category still, and I just don't. All right, let me, uh, let's, let's shift gears. Who else you got, Michael? Okay, I think this one's going to offend you a little bit, and uh, don't don't say Giannis. It, it, Do not it, say no, Giannis. No, no, <laughs> never. Uh, that's for our uh, offline conversations only. Um, it's Draymond Green, and no, totally fair. And I'm Draymond's one of oh, his really? diehard, yeah, one of his most diehard defenders. But the um, the overrated, underrated meter swung hard the other direction over the last 12 months but continue i gotta say i think that you might have contributed to that a little bit just in my own in my own psyche because of your work back in the day doing the top 100 um whenever he was near the top 10 or i think he what was the highest he ever finished i'm pretty sure he finished in the top 10 at least one of those years or consistently right I think he was in between 10 and 15 for like four straight years, probably. Like probably right yeah. around 11, 12 might have been the highest. Maybe 10. I don't know if he ever got up to 10, but he was right in that range. And by the way, don't go and retroactive this, Michael. Okay. He was, he deserved <laughs> to be there when he was there. It's just that he hit a cliff pretty hard this year. I Yeah. So when I was reading those in real time, I, I thought that that was... I think laughable might be a, a little offensive, but I was laughing. Wow. I'm sorry. And I, look, I think he's an all-time intelligent player. He's an all-time defender. He helped unlock the small ball revolution and changed how we view basketball. So, uh, like, credit, giving credit where credit is due, for sure. But it, it's always been just so difficult for me to, and for everybody, to separate in it when he was in his prime to separate everything that he did during the playoffs on huge stages um, from the fact that he played with the greatest backcourt in NBA history. And then he called Kevin Durant and begged him to climb aboard the Warriors and then chased Kevin Durant away a couple of years later. I just think you have to factor all that in. And uh, at the end of the day, his inability to put the ball in the basket kind of matters uh, that, you know, scoring does matter. Um he brought a lot to the table with all of his intangibles and everything and still does. But uh, yeah, it's it just, it, it was always just such a perfect fit that coalesced brilliantly. And looking at these guys kind of in a vacuum, I just never thought that he was on that level personally. But so that's why I, I, I throw yeah. him here. No, I mean, definitely you're, you're trending towards blasphemy here. You're right on the line, Michael, <laughs> right on the line. Um, I think that he fits so well with those guys because he could fit so well with lots and lots of types of guys because he does so many different things on on uh, on both ends. I mean, unbelievable passer, high IQ, unselfish, mm-hmm. doesn't overshoot. Uh, defensively can you know play multiple positions, cover almost every single guy in the league at his prime. And then also the ability to, to set tempo. You know, we saw it last year in the Western Conference Finals where he, you know, for a couple of games there in Portland, basically ran them off the court single-handedly. His high level was really, really high. Uh, in his own way, he could almost orchestrate a game from that position, unlike very, very few big men can in this mm-hmm. age. So that's why I give him a lot of credit for that. But I have a related one that's a little bit okay. of a heater. How do you feel about this? Are you ready? I'm ready. Golden State Warriors ownership. 
I think that they are absolutely overrated. I'm guilty of contributing. You're, you're calling me, you know, one of the, the leading overraters of a, a Draymond Green here. Uh, but <laughs> certainly, I bought everything Warriors owners were selling, you know, the, the light year stuff. I mean, obviously, that, when those comments came back to bite them. But when they're going out there and shelling out, you know, a billion for a brand new stadium, you know, they've got all these wine cellars in the Chase Center, and they're, you know, just going above and beyond personal butlers. It's like, okay, these guys are really changing the NBA economic structure. They're cashing all these checks. They're going to be able to have a dynasty uh, year after year. They certainly believed that they were uh, constructing something that was bigger than any individual player. And ultimately, they lost sight of the most important thing, which was talent is what wins the championships. You take away Steph Curry in terms of the health. They're the worst team in the league, and and they're worse than you know. Also, ran organizations like the Sacramento Kings and the Phoenix Suns. I thought it was supposed to be a light year situation, right? And that that seems like the lights went out. Actually, now in terms of their biggest mistake, they didn't bend over backwards and cater to Kevin Durant over these last couple of years. They Bingo. thought, you know, they thought, hey, we can massage it. We are who we are. We're good. We were good before him. We weren't good. Uh, you know, we can be good after him. And that was just not the case. And again, I think it was their hubris, their own reputation kind of going to their head a little bit. They'd had an awful lot of success. Certainly, they were probably exhausted at some point because the seasons were so long and it all blurred together. Um, But they mismanaged the Kevin Durant exit poorly, horribly, however you want to say it. They just didn't take care of business. And, you know, I still have trust that they're going to be able to pull this thing back together and, and potentially get back into contention. But that trust has a lot more to do with Steph Curry's abilities um, than it does to do with uh, the Golden State Warriors uh, ownership group. And you can see they're they're desperate and floundering like any other franchise. I mean, D'Angelo Russell, I mean, what a Hail Mary that was, right? Andrew Wiggins, <laughs> it's another Hail Mary to undo a Hail Mary. And so I think from that standpoint, um, their reputation has come crashing back to earth. I'm not sure people still view them as like, you know, this pristine ownership group. I imagine they do because they've won so much. Uh, but to me... I think that the last couple of years have been a reminder about what truly is driving the winning. And you can do all this stuff around the edges. You can do everything right off the court. Like ultimately you need superstar level guys playing at the peak of their abilities to, to sustain a dynasty like they had. Oh, it's, it's such a simple recipe. You just need like, as you said, you need a top seven, top eight player, top five player, get as many of them in the door as you possibly can and then do everything in your power to keep them and ultimately they failed uh and i honestly forgot one more point they also kind of got swagger jacked by steve Ballmer. you know i think steve Ballmer saw their blueprint and was like guess what i have 50 times more money than you guys do and i'm about to take it to a, a completely new level and now you know you have to wonder are they gonna still be able to compete you know you've got Balmer coming in with a brand new arena, you know, potentially in a couple of years in Inglewood. You know, he's spending a billion plus on that thing. He swings for the fences last summer, gets himself the the two superstar level guys that you need to have the foundation for a title team. It does seem like the power has shifted. And so from that standpoint, uh, you know, I guess there is a little bit more cause for concern for Golden State. That's a great point. If you're going to be a consistently successful ownership group, the all like what you do is you spend money. You hire the right people, and you just get out of the way. You don't do interviews saying that you're light years ahead. You don't, as you said, um, create this culture where you're kind of susceptible to 
uh, collapsing under the weight of your own hubris, which I think is what happened exactly. And I don't think that the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that the Warriors get enough blame for uh, for losing Kevin Durant in free agency. I mean, the whole point of signing him and having him for as long as possible and, 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 and staying light years ahead is to keep him. <laughs> and the second, I mean, he did re-sign, I guess, that first year, um, or he opted in or whatever happened. But, <clears throat> or I should say that last year, but uh, to lose him in free agency, how they did, uh, it takes two to tango. And honestly, he's a very mercurial personality, as we've come to to learn and know. But your job is to bend over backwards to to make sure that he is comfortable in every area of his life. And they, they failed in that regard. Yeah, I mean, look, he bailed them out a little bit, right? Because he made such a bad decision by going to Brooklyn and, and teaming up with Kyrie <laughs> that it was like so easy to focus on that part. But it did take the pressure off them, the fact that they had kind of botched that. Um, all right, Michael, give me some more. You're overrated. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to someone who I don't even really feel is worth acknowledging, but I want to acknowledge. Um, and that is Kyle Kuzma. <laughs> I, I just I don't know we're gonna be real brief here I are there people out here that out here still think that he is a above average NBA player I, like besides Puma executives well I mean two can, years can in I, a row can I illustrate yeah, this for you perfectly sure, sure, sure. right next to my barbershop uh, in Inglewood there is a mural and the mural has a basketball <laughs> in the center and LeBron is like sticking out his hand to grab the basketball Anthony Davis is sticking out his hand to grab the basketball, and Kyle Kuzma is sticking out, to, you know, his okay. hand to grab the that basketball. That is exactly what I'm talking about right there. Um, two years in a row, shooting 30% beyond the arc. Uh, you know, I have a, a tr- quick little trivia question for you, Ben. Um, guess how many points Kyle Kuzma has scored in the clutch this season? Wow. Um, is it over under 10? <laughs> you gotta guess the number, homie. Okay, seven. Uh, twelve. Twelve oh, points. I was pretty close. I mean, look, I'm yeah, out. On, I'm out on Kuzma too. So I totally. And also, by the way, no offense. A lot of your questions are leading questions, Michael. You make it really obvious because you hate a guy, and you're like, "Hey, you want a damning statistic? Why this guy sucks?" Okay, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What can I say? Um, Kuzma, not good, and I, I like. Before the trade deadline, I was like, you know, trying to think of different hypothetical ways that the Los Angeles Lakers could move him to get more immediate help that made more sense. You know, there was one that I wish happened that would send him to the Pistons for Derrick Rose. That would have been a really neat trade that I thought would would have boosted them quite a bit. And like you you tweet something like that out or you write it or whatever, you say it on a podcast and people are like, Kuzma for Rose? Like, why would we ever give up on Kyle Kuzma? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like... He's just not a very good basketball player, let alone his fit makes absolutely no sense with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. So I just wanted to to point that out here and, and, no, it, and throw him on the it's a, barbecue. It's a perfect one because this is where I'm talking about volume, right? I mean, the Lakers media complex is gigantic. There's no question. Obviously, everyone in the Lakers fan base really wants Kuzma to be the guy they want him to be, right? And he's just not that guy. Uh, He also happens to be incredibly visible on social media, um, including Instagram, the haircuts, the outfits, everything else that adds to the whole thing. 
um, there is no question that he is overrated. And like whenever the trade conversations came up, I was always asking myself, like, what teams really need Kyle Kuzma? Like, who's going to really want to give up something Zero. of value to get him? <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I don't know which organization is out there that's super interested in that. Uh, who else you got, Michael? Keep it coming. Okay, so I, I kind of love this one. <clears throat> Jamal Murray of the Denver Nuggets. Wow. Okay, this is interesting because Murray does have his group of haters. Like, There's a lot of people who are just like not in on him, think he's too unreliable mm-hmm. and just kind of frenetic and, and hasn't proven it and isn't really that number two guy yet. Um, I take I it you're I think I'm one of those camp. people. Okay. <laughs> no, and, and what really makes this whole exercise fascinating and fun is the reasons why you can call someone overrated or underrated or whatever. Uh, for me, it's the contract. And the kind of the the milieu in which it was agreed upon. So I mean, he gets that five year max from the Denver Nuggets at like the stroke of midnight when they can first offer it. And I was just like kind of flabbergasted to be honest. Now, granted, he had you go back to that uh, series against the Portland Trailblazers that they inevitably lost. And he had some ridiculous performances in that series a few years ago in the second round, um, like instant classic performances. Um, he then just didn't make any noticeable improvement from his age 21 to his age 22 season this year. And I think you could make the reasonable case that he was arguably the fourth most valuable guy on that Nuggets team. And so I just, it's it's a little bit of it is unfair. You know, he's offered the money. He takes the money. No one's going to blame him for that. But I would have liked to see some sort of uh, improvement from last year to this year, and we just did not get it. Yeah, look, I'm, I've always been in the camp kind of defending him and, and pointing out that those good moments in the playoffs that you're describing happened at an awfully young age, right? And so mm-hmm. for a guy to be able to perform at that level so early – in a high-pressure environment really speaks well for where this could go, right? We see so many guys don't even make the playoffs uh, by the time they're like, you know, even 23 or 24 years old, or if they do, they're playing smaller roles. And he was going head-to-head with like excellent backcourt talent and holding his own in those situations. And so that showed me a lot. It made me a lot more willing to accept that the glass was half full. Um, but there's warts here for sure. Um, I do think that the plateauing effect is unexpected, especially in situations where they're having other guys out for injury or whatever else. Or like, you know, a good example is Gary Harris falling off a cliff, right? Mm-hmm. What you want your number two guy in Murray to do in that situation is to be like, you know what? Gary Harris just flat out sucks this year. I don't know why. It's weird. <laughs> it, it came out of nowhere. Uh, but guess what? That means I have to take three or four more shots a game. And if they're not the purest shots, oh, well, I might have to force it a little bit more going to the basket. I have to put more on my own shoulders. I'm now Robin to Jokic's Batman, right? That's sort of the mentality shit that you have to have. And I didn't necessarily see that from him this year, and I, I was a little bit disappointed by that. Um, I'm not giving up on him, though. I also no, do kind of – I kind of wonder with the overrated, underrated, uh, does he really have that many stands like anymore? Um, you know, it could be a situation where – Uh, the glimmer has worn off from him a little bit um, because I do find myself defending him a lot and I feel like I don't have a lot of support on that one. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I'm out on a tree limb a little bit at this point. Um, So I don't know. Maybe he's become a a little bit of a favored punching bag. 
Yeah, check back with me in like six months and he'll be underrated in my opinion. So that's just kind of how this goes. Everything changes so quickly. So along the same line of younger players, I mean, what about, you know, my favorite guys, Devin Booker, D'Angelo Russell? I mean, this kind of crop of players Mm -hmm. um, who have gotten that all-star injury replacement, you know, asterisk, you can apply that or, or choose not to apply that if you don't want to who have sort of been elevated into that club, but maybe there's still you know a lot of question marks. Do they belong there? I feel like those are the type of players who really get overrated a lot. Um, and I guess maybe the argument is if you flop some of those guys with Jamal Murray, they would have kind of similar situations where if they were on winning organizations, they could contribute, but maybe not enough to, to take teams over the top. But I feel like you know a lot of the things that you're saying about Murray in terms of whether it's plateauing or how much is he overall impacting things? I think those questions are even bigger for guys like Russell and Booker. And I feel like they get way more attention and hype because of their scoring numbers and because of their high moments at certain points um, than Murray does. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I mean, first of all, I would separate. I think Devin Booker is in already a different tier than D'Angelo Russell. And so does that tier ever finish above 13th in the Western Conference or no? Oh, my goodness gracious. I mean, Booker, we've 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 already I can't even go down this well with you, but you're right. People know how I feel about Booker. So you can leave Booker out of it. How do you feel about Russell? uh, I thought it was really interesting that Malik Beasley was better after the trade than he was in Minnesota. Um. Look, if you want to say Russell's overrated, I think we're 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 kind of at the stage now where, uh, because of the contract and because of just I guess his play with the Golden State Warriors as the starting point guard on the worst team in the league, that it's it's kind of what you said about Jamal Murray. Like, there's no real stands anymore for D'Angelo Russell. He's kind of fallen back to earth. Uh, and been properly rated, I would, I would assume, and I would hope. Um, that's kind of my read on him. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 
Okay, how about this, Michael? I got another nominee for you. I'm going to swing a little bit bigger. Tell me if you like this. Joel Embiid. What do you think? (laughs) Is Joel Embiid overrated? Now, look, again, disclaimer applies like I said at the beginning. I'm not saying he's bad. Joel Embiid is very, very good. But I think that the, the thing that people love to rush to is that he's the most talented player in the Eastern Conference. He could be the best player in the Eastern Conference, right? When he plays really well, his ceiling is that, right? There's no question. It's a factual statement. Like, when he is at his best, he, you know, is right there with Giannis or anybody else in that conference. I just think the problem is the consistency, uh, the the body, of course, the, the health factors, um, the reliability, the personality in terms of being a franchise-level guy. I mean, I love what he's doing off the court in terms of the donations and, and leading in that manner. Is he mm-hmm. making his teammates better? I think it's a completely fair question. And then is his presence complicating life for his most important teammates in terms of making things uh, more difficult for them? I think all of those are real legit questions. And you know, I'm not trying to just completely bash the 76ers here, but another guy I would put in this category, frankly— is Tobias Harris. And again, he's on my list. Yeah. Nicest guy ever. Right. But part of it is with the contract and, and you look at like the trade package they put together in terms of how much they paid to get him wild overpay. You look at the contract they gave him in free agency, wild overpay for a guy who's not really moving the needle in a major way from, from wins to, and losses. And, you know, it was one of the ultimate nice guy hustles of all time. I mean, give him full credit for the finesse on Elton Brand to be able to, like, get that landing spot lined up and get that gigantic bag of cash in the summer while also somehow, uh, you know, leading that organization to kind of push Jimmy Butler out the out the door. I mean, in hindsight, it seems like a ludicrous series of decisions from them. Um, but I think that, you know, ultimately, like, people really want Tobias Harris to be the number three guy, you know, on a, a championship level team. And I just think he's underqualified to be that guy. Tobias Harris was also on my list. Uh, well, let, let's stick to the big gun. What do you think about Embiid? First? Okay. Yeah. I'm building up to that. Um, I am I'm honestly a little flabbergasted that you, you dropped such a, such a huge name and such a, like undeniable talent, like no, as you said, I mean, granted, like no one is here to say that Joel Embiid is not good or, but it, it for me, it's kind of like he just so clearly has not lived up to what he could be. And it's very, very frustrating, very frustrating. And I do think that, you know, he's been short circuited by an incompetent front office and, just a, a, a mishmash of skill sets that just do not complement him all that well, and that's a little frustrating. But that does not excuse coming into the season like out of shape entirely, like clearly, and then never really get, catching a stride and constantly being hurt and whining uh, to the media and whining on social media. And, uh, you know, just statistically not making any leaps and declining in areas where it's just it makes you scratch your head. And like talking trash to guys who aren't as good as him constantly. Right. And then, okay, mm -hmm. well, where are you when, you know, where are you in the playoffs? Right. Like, are you are you walking the walk like you're talking the talk? I mean, that kind of stuff bothers me. Look, if he winds up leaving Philly. There's no question he's going to win the divorce. People are going to side with Embiid and look at um, Elton Brand and look back to Brian Colangelo and look at the ownership group 
and there's going to be a million things. Remember when Embiid stepped up for the arena workers and the team employees and the owners didn't want to do it and he kind of guilt tripped them? You know, remember when, uh, you know, they're saying all these weird things on burner accounts behind his back? Like, he's obviously going to win that divorce, but I think your point is accurate. Like, he's going to bear some responsibility if that entire situation doesn't wind up working out, right? Uh, some of that is going to fall on his shoulders. I'm not sure he's going to be able to look back on his Philly tenure and say, look, I did everything perfectly. I have no regrets. I ran it as far as I could possibly go. This isn't like a LeBron in Cleveland in 2010 situation. You know what I mean? It's definitely different no. and more complicated than that. No, for sure. But when you are, you know, coming into this season, you are saying that you're going to win the MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. And then you just like no show in certain games against like legitimate opponents. It's just like, what are what are we even doing here? Um, like you should be dominant. You should be in the conversation, honestly, with Giannis as the best player in your conference, and it's not even close. And the gap is like widening. So I'm, I, I get what you're 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 going. I, it's weird that he didn't even like cross my mind for this exercise to say that he's overrated. He's just more frustrating to me. Well, that's why I'm here, Michael, to set you straight. You know, that's my role Appreciate on this it. show. No question. Uh, who else you got on your list? And you mentioned you had Tobias. Uh, yeah. Go on. I mean, Tobias. It's it's more of the contract thing that you mentioned, and. I think maybe either his team or the fan base just believing that he could be more of a playmaker because that's it's obviously what they needed in that offense, someone who could run a pick and roll with either Al Horford or Joel Embiid, and that's just not his game. I mean, he's an efficient, nice scorer. He'll get you 20. He'll never take a night off, which is just really valuable and underrated, um, particularly with a team like Philadelphia and all the injury issues that they've had. But... Yeah, um, he kind of is not going to, in my opinion, ever be an all-star, and he's just paid more than a lot of guys who are, uh, and that's that's unfortunate. Okay, I threw you a bone with these two Sixers. Uh, I might have to mm-hmm. come back at you with one that you're not going to be so pleased about, okay? Um, oh, geez. I think this is a case of a player going from underrated to overrated in a fairly okay. short period of time period. It is... Kemba Walker, what do you think? Oh, geez. Um, can you? I mean, Here, here's my make case. The case. Make the yeah, case here, for me. Well, here's my case. Look, he's legitimately underrated in Charlotte the whole way through because no one's really ever going to talk about them. They're never on television. He's, you know, in a situation where ownership has never been, you know, excellent A plus there under Michael Jordan. He's in a situation where his rosters have always been an absolute mess. He gets a lot of the hero ball credit for just putting, you know, really bad teams on his back, carrying them to the playoffs. And when they lose, he escapes all criticism because they weren't really supposed to win, right? I think that what we saw from the FIBA World Cup performance um, and then even just the excitement kind of like coming into this season, just him being on the Celtics and being in a better situation and, oh, is he going to be able to be as good or better for the Celtics as Kyrie and everything else? I think it just built up a little bit too much attention. Like back in FIBA, I mean, when they really needed someone to save the day, he was nowhere to be found. Like he did not accomplish those goals in the biggest moments. And had you had another point guard of similar attention, whether it's Lillard um, or other guys on that level, I think that they would have performed better and had their team perform better than they did in that situation. Then you come into this season, of course, I mean, he's the ultimate darling story. There is no question about it. Like, 
uh, all the bad energy is out in Boston. Here comes new good energy. He's fitting in with his teammates. And not only is he succeeding, but then guys like Tatum and Brown are able to find more comfortable roles. The chemistry is better. Everything's going along. I just looked ahead into the playoffs and said, do I trust Kemba Walker in these playoffs to be that guy? And the answer is no. And so quickly the conversation shifted to, oh, it's going to be Tatum's team. Tatum's going to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think underlying that, that excitement around Tatum was the idea that if you are relying on Kemba to get through these Eastern Conference playoffs against top-level teams that have done it before, whether it's Toronto, Philly, uh, or Milwaukee, like that's not going to play out well for you, right? Like If Kemba's your best player in the series, like you're probably going down to any of those teams. So okay. that's sort of my argument. I think that he gets too much nice guy shine. He gets too much of the green beer uh, love. And I just think that he is not a top tier point guard, but people kind of want to force him into that conversation. Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) Let me just start by saying that criticizing Kemba for showing up and participating in team USA as the highest profile member of that team when no one else wanted to play. I don't think that that's fair to him at all. Like you can't say, Oh, Dame Lillard would have been on this team and they would have performed better. Well, it's like Dame Lillard could have showed up, but he had other priorities apparently. So I actually give credit to Kemba or maybe not even credit. I just think that it was cool that he did play on that team. Um, hey, look, I had to cover them here before they took off. I was very glad that he was there because there was not a lot of talented <laughs> players there. I'm just saying when I looked at the court, I was disappointed. I was expecting a gold medal from a Kemba Walker led team. Even with that being the C team, you know, all the A-listers not even considering it and the B-listers kind of dropping out one by one, I still thought they had enough talent to do it. And maybe I'm a little too old school, but when a team falls short of expectations like that, I do look to both coach and point guard. And I thought both Pop and Kemba just kind of let things down. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't to the same level that I was expecting. Now that we know what we know about Jason Tatum, obviously, if he were healthy for that run, they would have blown everybody up by 45 points at least. But well, and going Kyle Kuzma to, too, right? Sure, yeah, Kuzma. <laughs> <laughs> Still not recovered from that ankle injury. Um, I think your point about Kemba being the best player, or or thinking that he could be, or uh, you know concern about him being the best player on a team throughout an entire playoff run you're, you're screwed if that happens I do agree with that for sure I don't think that that is what the the situation was in Boston heading into this year's uh, postseason um, I think a more fascinating question is just what he would have looked like in a playoff series against one of the better teams because of his uh, deficiencies on the defensive end and how much better the Celtics were uh, on that side of the ball when he was on the bench. And uh, I don't think they would have ever benched him in crunch time or anything like that. But there would be offense-defense substitutions, I think. And that's that's a little... That's tricky um, for someone who's on a max contract who is as good as he is, who played in the All-Star game. I think that there's also a little bit of recency bias here because of the knee injury that he had and how poorly he played in the All-Star game and uh, and down the stretch before uh, uh, the season was put on hiatus. But like he was like great 
um, in a lot of performances for the Celtics this season. And his numbers are, are very impressive. And you really can't quantify the impact that he had on the locker room uh, coming in to replace Kyrie Irving and, and, and uh, that entire just, uh, you know, volcano last year uh but i think he did i think i think he went above and beyond the high expectations that were set there and i mean he is a super nice guy i don't know if you've ever talked to him but he's like one of the nicest players in the whole league so that's just well, i that's know just that's what i'm real. saying no it is real and that's why i think he gets slightly overrated because media tends to fall in love with him a little bit and i hear what you're saying <laughs> about the uh, about the locker room impact and all that and i'm just saying look i just wanted to see it in the playoffs i thought he was going to enter this postseason same same with, with more to prove than just about anyone and i just before we crown him and i do think there's like a real tendency especially among the boston media to prematurely crown guys you know tatum was instantly like this top 10 postseason uh guy like out of the gate you know after he had one really really nice month right kemba was going to be uh, the replacement for, you know, Kyrie falls apart in the playoffs. Here's Kemba to save the day. And I just wanted to see it first. That's all. And again, I'm not trying to bag on this guy. He is a really, really nice guy. I just think that the the pendulum just shifted a little bit too far and too fast for my liking. All right, Michael, we got time for a couple more if you've got them on your list. Who you got? Okay. Uh, I This guy, I'm not even sure if he's overrated because I think the, the jury's out, but I'm including him anyway. Um, Julius Randle. Oh, yeah. I had him, too. Um, Yeah. It's a great call. The focus on double-doubles, Michael, has always killed me. If that's what you're leading with as your your great strength is, oh, I've got double-doubles, it's a big-time problem. This goes all the way back to the J.J. Hickson uh, contract year explosion with the Portland Trailblazers where he fooled everybody into giving him some money because he kept just randomly getting 12 points and 10 rebounds, and everybody called that this big dynamic energy, game-changing type of guy. Um, I feel like Randall is in a similar situation where I just hear about these empty stat double-doubles and none of it matters. The guy finished the season averaging 20 and 10, and he might be... I don't want to say he's the worst player in the league or anything like that, because that's just, that's not nice. But if I'm starting a team, if I'm drafting, I'm staying so far away from Julius Randle. It's really funny to me, after the year uh, was suspended, there were these reports of uh, his teammates being like, yeah, um, just anonymous quotes being like, yeah, we don't. We did not enjoy playing with Julius Randle. And if you've ever watched the New York Knicks player, if you watched the Lakers play when he was there... He's not an enjoyable basketball player to be beside. I mean, he has he he'll flash vision. Um, mostly, he's a black hole. Uh, mostly, he has this weird confidence in his jump shot that is just so undeserved. I've seen some of the worst shots I've ever seen NBA players take launch from his broken form. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's just a lot of when people are talking about empty calories, this is exactly what they mean. He does very very little to impact winning and I think people know that by now, but for those that don't, this is why he's on the overrated list. Yeah, and I think that fantasy basketball players might tend to stick to him just a little bit longer than most, right? Because I'm sure he's producing pretty well in fantasy basketball and that's another thing where I think it's easy to overrate guys based off those box score stats because uh, you know, if you're a fantasy player and he's on your team and like he's helping you, he's contributing to wins there, but not wins in real life. It's easy to kind of excuse him and say, oh, it's the Knicks fault, uh, not his fault. I would say the most offensive pre-draft commentary I've ever heard in my entire life 
was people wanting to compare Zion to Julius Randle. I'm not sure anything made me madder or more angry or more personally just like, you know, make my oh, skin I, I, crawl more than yeah. that. I have another one. Uh, people who uh, compared <laughs> Julius Randle to Draymond Green. Um, I think, I, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll just say it, like but I'm Luke not sure. If it ha- yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I wasn't positive if, if he did ever say that, but it's just like, what are we even talking about? Like one is one of the worst defenders in the league and one is an all-timer. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a good thought, right? It's like, okay, we have an undersized guy who we could probably maximize his utility at the five if we can just teach him to have a huge motor defensively and be a shot blocker um, and be unselfish offensively and shoot the occasional three and pass the basketball well and finish uh, when called upon, then he can be Draymond Green. It's like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. That's like 15 things that we need to change about this guy. Like that yeah, doesn't sound the, like a comparison at all. <laughs> the, the first... Uh Real quick story time. When I covered the Lakers, the first question I ever asked Byron Scott in a press conference was if he would consider playing Julius Randle at the five. And he responded by smirking and then laughing for (laughs) about three, three to five seconds. And that was then we moved on to the next question. So that's just kind of. So who uh, was he making fun of you, Julius, or both in that situation? At the time, I read it as, oh, that was a pretty stupid question, even though we all know what happened to Byron Scott and his tenure and how he approached basketball strategy. But now it's I I think it might have been more like you like you really don't know what you have with Julius Randle if you think I can play him at the five, even if the league is going small as it is. Right. It's like, okay, internet dork, you think you understand the trend, but you haven't watched Julius Randle try to protect the basket <laughs> is basically where he was going with that. Um, yeah, yeah. And, he, and probably in the back of his mind, he was like, yep, if I ever need to get fired, I should just play Randle at the five because we'll lose every game. <laughs> uh, all right. Any others on your list to, to wrap this thing up? Sure. I have one more. Um, Clint Capella. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, I think Clint Capella will be fine in Atlanta. Uh, I think it's a good place for him playing beside Trey Young. And he really, all he has to do is set screens and roll and jump. And he's capable of doing that. But I just, in my mind, have so many, like, so many possessions where, uh, particularly big time possessions against the Warriors in the playoffs, which might be a really high standard, but that's when the Rockets really needed him to come through. Where, you know, he would get the ball either on a putback situation or he would be fed it by by Chris Paul, not on a lob, and it would be uh, you know five feet away from the rim, and it was just like the most hopeless thing you've ever seen in your whole life. And if he finished or even drew a foul on some of those possessions, those really tight games, uh, maybe they would have won and, and advanced. Who knows? I, I Maybe it's unfair for me to just kind of single out those specific plays that I'm thinking of in my head. But, like, I just always thought that also defensively he was a little overrated. I mean, it's really cool that he can switch and execute their, their scheme as is but like they were also pretty fine i thought when he was off the floor and you couldn't really play him at the end of in crunch time uh against some opponents um in the playoffs and so like i don't know maybe this is unfair maybe this is a reach but i've always just thought that clint capella was a bit overrated 
I could see it, especially because he didn't have the world's greatest season this year. Um, yeah, I mean, he's not that that number three guy on a title team, which is sort of like what you would look at when you look at their roster and salaries. Like last year during the Chris Paul year, you'd think, okay, like that's sort of how he lines up. Like he's got to be more important than PJ Tucker because of how much he's getting paid and everything else. But he never really performed on that level. And like you mentioned, a lot of times they had to pull him from the court just for matchups. I mean, I think that he could be falling victim to uh, changing style stuff here too. I mean, obviously the first wave was like Roy Hibbert kind of getting knocked out of the NBA, right? The slow, plodding, rim-protecting guys who can't stretch are gone. And they're replaced um, largely by the Capella types where you're just basically dunking on offense, diving to the hoop, um, you know, rebounding, energy, and then defensively, you're, you're trying to protect the rim, but also hopefully switching, you know, at times. You're like slightly more versatile, but not completely versatile. And I wonder if we're just in a situation where like his value relative to the way the league is, uh, the basketball is being played around the league is just in a natural decline here, regardless of how good he is as an actual player. You know what I mean? Like, I mm-hmm. think that Capella two years ago is probably just a more valuable commodity than Capella two years from now, if that makes sense. And so sure. we're just sort of like riding that decline. Would you agree? I would 100% agree. And I always thought that he benefited just with with what he was asked to do. He really benefited from playing with two of like the best lob throwers in the league with Harden and CP. They just made him look so good. They set him up brilliantly. And imagining him coming of age in any other environment, I just don't think he ever gets anything close to that contract. I don't think his his worth is, 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 is anywhere near what it became. Um and so, yeah, uh, again, I think he'll be okay with Trey Young, and I think the Hawks were are fine in in trying to get a player like that to to build around Trey and and try to kind of mitigate some of his weaknesses. But like, all in all, Clint Capella was just I thought built up to be a little bit more than than he's been. Well, you mentioned Trey Young. I mean, I think that. He's mandatorily on this list, too. I mean, there's no way he should have started. Oh, I knew that game. was coming. I knew that was coming. And I don't want to dwell on that because we've had this conversation before. I think a lot of people have had it around the league. But he's just not an all-star starter. You know, he's a really good player. I think he's going to be a franchise player for a long time. I think it's even cool that he's going to connect with the fans and play in this horse game that you so despise that's about to be televised and everything else. But, I mean, come on. Not an all-star starter. Uh, we can just leave that one there. All right, Michael, I want your last one. Let's leave on a bang. What you got? um we've pretty much exhausted all of them but i do have i have a coach and i don't even really want to say this person's name because i don't really believe it in my gut but i wanted to put a a coach on my list and it was really difficult to try to find someone who was like a smart just a smart pick here because i think a lot of coaches you're really really gonna you're really gonna call out brad stevens for not ever making not. the finals? Is that what's no. is that where you're going? Oh, oh, where are you going? Low, low, low key, the the best defensive mind in the league. No, I um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with Terry Stotts. Wow. Who, yeah. Come on, yeah. Michael. He's been making exactly. lemonade out of lemons for years. I know. How are you going to do that? No, it's it's literally just me trying to to. Uh, I don't even know. I'm I'm answering a question here, and I'm. I'm trying to weigh what I believe is his public perception against what he's actually accomplished. And I, <laughs> like, I can't even 
like formulate a argument for why he's overrated, but he's also someone who just he never is criticized in a way that I think a lot of other coaches on his level get criticism. I mean, we talked earlier about Mike D'Antoni and granted Terry Stotts never receives the praise that D'Antoni has throughout his career, but I don't know. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know, man. I can't even like, what does this, are you just like, insulted that i threw his name out there what what do you think about when you do you get what i'm trying to even go for right now a little bit i think that i think he's basically properly rated because of what you just said he doesn't get talked about enough he doesn't get the hype so he also doesn't get the criticism they're just sort of off the radar and it's like when they win dame gets all the credit right and when they Mm -hmm. lose everybody trashes the roster right or or the gm so like stots Mm -hmm. is just sort of like uh, the undiscussed part of it. I think he's a really good coach. I think that there's been a couple seasons where they just way outperform my expectations, and I give him a lot of credit for personality management. His bond with Lillard is airtight. It has been the whole way, and I think that's the most important thing in modern coaching. Are you maximizing yeah. your best player's ability? So I give him a lot of credit there. I'm actually going to end this on a heater, Michael. I'm going to swing bigger than you, and I, I want to see what you think. Are you ready? Oh, I was born ready. Spurs front office, Greg Popovich, the GM, and R.C. Buford. I think that as of this moment right now, they are officially overrated. I think that everyone knows I'm a disciple of the Spurs monastery, have been for years and years and years, no question. The number of great moves they made along the way, legendary, right? I mean, just the timing to get the Duncan pick, uh, finding Parker the way they found Parker. Manu Ginobili, maybe the greatest draft pick you know, by slot, in the NBA's history, right? I mean, go right down the list. Kawhi Leonard and the player development project. That trade, George Hill for Kawhi Leonard's laughable. I mean, laughable. What a deal, right? Um, And of course, they had a long, long run of this. But we have a track record here now, basically the last five years since Duncan retired, that does not look very good. You talked about Golden State's ownership group not getting enough criticism for not keeping kevin durant mm-hmm, happy mm-hmm, look at mm-hmm. the Kawhi leonard trade i mean that thing oh, has yeah. aged like the cheapest possible wine you know not fine wine not anything pop would be drinking around his you know ten thousand dollar dinners with everybody that's that's like boxed wine that's how that one aged and basically immediately <laughs> right so they did not handle the Kawhi situation properly i was okay with the lamarcus move but i'm not sure that's panned out as well as they wanted the DeRozan situation to me has kind of been a mess, you know, sort of from the start. Um, and then you look at their other, whether it's kind of recent draft picks, their other moves around the edges. I mean, there's been a few nice things here and there. I thought Rudy Gay actually, you know, panned out pretty well for them. Uh, losing Davis Bertans the way they did, not great. Um, and I just think that, you know, even like Murray, uh, DeJounte Murray, I'm I'm fairly in on him. I thought the contract that they got for him was great. But I haven't seen him take necessarily the next step like I was hoping for, that that big leap from a player development standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just sort of left wanting, uh, you know, a clearer direction, um, you know, a, a return to sort of the Spurs archetype of player. I feel like that's maybe been muddied here a little bit over the last couple of years. And I think maybe, um, you know, their their reputation was just set at such a high bar. It's, you know, impossible for anyone to live up to it. Um but I think that we've looked at a, a team that's just not been there for, you know, four or five straight years. And, and there's definitely things you can question along the way. I think that, 
Yeah. No, this is, I, I agree generally with everything that you said. I'll push back on the LaMarcus Aldridge signing. I think that was a coup when it happened. Um, oh, I, I agree. I'm just, what I'm saying is, did they get as much from that as they thought? Because when they made that deal, mm. I thought, oh, this is going to be this little, you know, like the next uh, baton handoff, right? Duncan's going to take him under his wing. It's going to solidify another five years of of Kawhi and LaMarcus together as this like, you know, core group that can just com- com- consistently compete for titles and everything else. And their roster has just been nowhere near that here over the last couple of years. No. And by the way, both these guys are obvious Hall of Famers certified. Sure. They, they're above really any criticism. They've earned every right. I just think that like they get every pass still and they probably will get every pass until the end of time. And, you know, from like sort of the national media and the general population. And it just hasn't been that pretty for the last couple of years. That's really my only point. No, for sure. I think they've had, I mean, it, it begins and ends, I think, with the Kawhi Leonard trade. And not only having to trade Kawhi Leonard, who, in my opinion, is the best basketball player alive, but putting yourself uh, in a situation where you only get back Jakob Pertl and DeMar DeRozan, like... That's just a really tough pill to swallow. And I know that their back was against the wall uh, in a lot of different ways. And there were a lot of question marks about Kawhi's health and his contract situation that made moving him so tricky. Um, But when you combine that with, I guess, just like the on-court stylistic uh, uh, decision-making that has taken place where they just don't want to be a part of the three-point revolution yet defensively they want to stop the three-point revolution so it's like that contradiction has been very confusing to watch unfold over the past couple seasons and uh, lastly uh, uh, like when a player like DeJounte Murray who they were extremely high on I was extremely high on before last season when he tears his ACL in the fashion that he did with the, at the, the with the, the poor timing that that injury was was, was suffered that's also just like a kind of a death blow that not a lot of teams can come back from. And his season this year has been really disappointing coming back from the injury. So hopefully he can bounce back. Um, but like you said, I just like the Kawhi Leonard thing is really tough. And I, I agree and look, with you I that mean, they're, they're, they're also, at this point. Yeah. They're victims of their own success too. Right. I mean, how many other front offices now have former Spurs guys running this show? I mean, a lot of their their brain power has kind of leaked out into other organizations. That's tough to keep up with, right? Like you know, you're, it's a constant challenge year after year after year. And if everybody's turning to your organization for like eight straight summers, peeling off your assistant GMs or you know your de- director of player personnel or whoever, eventually that's going to add up. Um, you know, I, it'll be yeah, very very fascinating to see. Like we're watching the Bulls kind of use this uh, coronavirus crisis as a transition period. And there was scuttlebutt. Hey, what's Popovich going to do? Is this going to be his last season? Is he going to come back? I mean, is this an organization that could be in for a transition uh, once this thing, uh, you know, blows over? Or do they try to just roll it out for one more year with the same group? Or or what do they do? I mean, to me, it's it's one of the kind of the fundamental organizational type questions that we have around the league right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The the Spurs brain drain, and I think a lot of teams around the league just copying what they what they do in terms of, be it uh, international scouting or yeah, just snatching up the exact personnel that was making the decisions 
for the Spurs. Um, you know, I'm doing this piece. I don't want to step on it at all here. Uh, that I've been reporting for all the basically the entire season about chemistry and the Spurs. One would uh, assume come up a ton in the story and just like the influence that they've had, but then also when at least a third of the league you could say directly came from the Greg Popovich RC Buford tree. They then, as you said, they do the exact same things that San Antonio was doing and the competitive uh, advantages that the Spurs had for so long, uh, they just disappear. For sure. Well, Michael, good news. We've set a record. We've talked for almost 80 minutes about one question sent in from our guy, Harry. We have like 35 more questions to get to, but we're not going to do it today. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben Golliver. We will be back next week with all of those great unanswered questions, but keep them coming. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Guys, I know we angered you with somebody that we included or somebody that we forgot to include, so be sure to give us the follow-up on your own personal most overrated list. All right, Michael. I'm sure we're not going to get any blowback on this one whatsoever. (laughs) Until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, man.